this week, improving decisions regarding breast cancer screening, and an authoritative randomized control trial. Can we stop using bridging anticoagulation when patients are going for surgery and procedures? Hello, and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine. As always, I'm Amol Verma. I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and I am thrilled to be joined today by my good friend, Nathan Zilbert, who is a resident in general surgery also at the University of Toronto. Hey, Nathan, how's it going? I'm doing very well, Amol. How are you? I'm wonderful, and Nathan and I are delighted to be hosted in a virtual space by Healthy Debate. You can find everything about the podcast online at healthydebate.ca slash the rounds table. So Nathan, as always, you and I are talking about two articles, and then we'll be offering some good stuff recommendations. I have a feeling that our first article is going to get a little contentious. We're talking about breast cancer screening and... uh, you come to this from a substantial amount of uh, personal clinical experience. That's right, Amol. So I think this is definitely a very uh, provocative and uh, interesting article that was published uh, over the summer in The Lancet. And it was uh, about a a randomized controlled trial that uh, assessed whether a decision aid to help women who are thinking about undergoing screening mammography, uh, whether or not this decision aid would reduce their decision to be screened. And the main finding was that this decision aid resulted in a, a decrease in the, in the women uh, who, who wanted to be screened and an increase in those that they felt were making an informed choice from 25% of women making an informed choice compared to 15% when using this decision aid. Interesting. Okay, so Nathan, what is the context and background for this? Why do this study? Yeah, so... As you know, breast cancer is an incredibly common cancer. It's uh, the most common cancer in women and the, the second uh, leading cause of cancer-related death in women. And screening mammography has been uh, implemented across many uh, jurisdictions over uh, you know, the past several decades as a, an effort to, on a population basis, result in early detection and uh, ultimately cure women of, uh, of cancer. It's uh, pretty convincing that screening does save uh, breast cancer-related uh, lives in women over 50. And between uh, 40 and 50, it's uh, quite a bit uh, more controversial. But there's increasing concern that screening programs, even in this uh, population of women over 50, can result in some overdetection and overtreatment of low-grade, otherwise would-be indolent, not life-threatening disease if it hadn't been diagnosed. And uh, one study uh, from England from 2012 determined that if uh, 10,000 women are screened over a 20-year period, 43 deaths are prevented from screening programs, but 129 cancers are, are overdiagnosed or treated. So that was the background context of this study to try and see if uh, this particular type of intervention would uh, change women's preferences regarding uh, undergoing screening in the first place. Right. And so the main finding from that independent UK panel is that for every one breast cancer death prevented, screening results in overdiagnosis or overtreatment for three breast cancers, right? That's right. That's some quick division. I'm I'm all over the arithmetic. Listen, I take my wins where I can get them. So Nathan, (laughs) what did the authors uh, do for this study? How did they design their investigation? 
So they uh, had a, a population of about 800 women from New South Wales, Australia, that were between the ages of 48 and 50, who'd never had breast cancer before, had never been screened for breast cancer before, and were felt to be of uh, sort of no increased risk for breast cancer. And their intervention was when they received some information in the mail about breast cancer screening, they either received sort of typical what there was determined to be typical literature on breast cancer screening, focusing on risk reduction and reduction of breast cancer deaths, as well as some potential for false positive results, versus their intervention group where this information was augmented with specific information about over-detection and over-treatment. Okay, so that seems pretty straightforward. So what was the primary outcome for this study? So their primary outcome was a little bit of a, of a difficult outcome to get your head around. It's what they deemed to be an informed choice. So they ultimately surveyed these women after they received this literature in the mail and uh, gave them some questions both about breast cancer knowledge based on all the information they received, their attitudes about breast cancer screening, and their intended actions about breast cancer screening in light of the information that they had received in the mail, including the intervention or control uh, decision aid. And the main outcome was an informed choice. And in order to consider their choice to be informed, they had to demonstrate adequate knowledge and then demonstrate attitudes and uh, intended actions that were consistent with each other. So if you had knowledge that met their threshold and consistent attitudes and actions, that was considered to be an informed choice. Interesting. So that's a little complicated. A little bit. All right. But so uh, tell me what they found. As I mentioned in the beginning, the patients that received the intervention decision aid, which included information about overdetection, 25% of those women made an informed choice compared to 15% in the control group. So can I just take a quick second and reflect on the fact that the numbers seem to be abysmally low? Like, of the people included in this study, which, you know, presumably these are already people, like this is a population-based study. So they just like cold called random people, right? Right. So the people who said yes to participate presumably are going to be some sort of self-selected population. Sure. And so of those people, we're talking like in the best case or in the intervention group, like 30% approximately were able or were making what the investigators thought was an informed decision. Is that about right? Well, 25% making an informed decision and just under 30% uh, acquiring uh, sufficient knowledge from the investigator's perspective. So, I mean, I, so it, is it just me or does that seem low to you? Like either their requirement for what is sufficient knowledge was maybe too stringent uh, or, you know, people just aren't that informed or they're intervention wasn't that helpful or the intervention for at least a you know significant percentage of people is not adequate in you know getting people to the level of knowledge that the investigators think is required to make an informed choice so it's impossible to know i think based on uh you know the type of study that was done here which of those issues is the uh, the primary issue around having such a low number presumably a, a combination of all of them but uh did the authors talk about the the you know relatively low numbers at all well they made a statement about you know it is unknown how much knowledge is actually required to make a, an informed decision uh in in this domain you know there was a sentence like that but 
the test that they gave these patients, and I, you know, I keep calling it a test because that's really kind of what it seemed like to me. You know, a, 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 it was a, multiple a, choice, a, a multiple choice examination to the general public on you know nuanced uh, breast cancer, you know, screening facts. You know, you could you could make a I think a pretty reasonable argument that if you know someone mailed you a textbook in the mail and said, you know, please uh, give this a read at your leisure. It's actually about something important, but uh, not something so important that you have to make this decision, you know, tomorrow. This is These are people who are being considered for screening sometime in the horizon. They don't even have a, an appointment, you know, to have that done. And then five weeks later, you get a, a phone call and someone just starts asking you questions about that book. I mean, you know, depending on your learning style, personality, uh, interest in the topic, you may or may not do so well on that test. And, you know, this is, again, assuming that that information is uh, the necessary information to make the uh, to make the decision that you're supposed to make. So do you think you're being a bit harsh on the book? I mean, neither of us have seen it. It says it's some kind of maybe it's like incredibly visually stimulating. Yeah, they say that they use, you know, infographics and uh, and, you know, they attempt to, uh, you know, try to make it obviously understanding for uh, for a lay audience. But I mean, I'm just making the point that. It, w- it was certainly not a very intensive intervention, let's say. Right. And I don't, so I don't think we should necessarily assume that this is some kind of a, a failure of this particular yeah. intervention. It is what it is. They mailed, they mailed some literature and the literature was different between the two groups with the intervention group focusing on overdetection, which the other one had no literature on. And, you know, it showed that more women who received the information on, the, on, the, on uh, overdetection had more knowledge on breast cancer screening overall. And I'll take a second and say it's not unimpressive either that, you know, the differences between the groups were relatively uh, large, right? Yeah, I mean, it's about a 10%. uh, You know, know, and we're talking about population uh, level. That's pretty substantial. Yeah. And so then coming to the question about whether this intervention motivated behavior. Yeah, so we don't have uh, data on whether or not these people actually went on to get screened, but we have their declared preferences as to whether they would be screened. And in fact, the control group, the women in that group said that they would, 87% of them would choose to be screened compared to 74% in the intervention group. So, so less as maybe would be uh, approximately 10% difference. You're blowing it away today with uh, not just division, but subtraction. (laughs) Let's see if we can get through all of the major arithmetic (laughs) functions today. And uh, maybe some order of operations can be uh, (laughs) slipped in there for you. I don't know. Uh, but that was, that was statistically significant as well. So, you know, I think, uh, there was an effect of this intervention and it, uh, while overall, you know, women remained positive in their views towards screening, uh, there was, uh, less of them that wished to be screened after being exposed to the interventions that highlighted the issues around overdetection. Okay. So that was the study. Uh, so let's come to the part where we wax poetic about our opinions about the study. So in, in a haiku, Nathan, what is your, what is your take about this? And yeah, so, you know, I've always preferred a, a more uh, unstructured free verse to the uh, <laughs> limitations of the, haik, of the haiku. So I'm just going to just give you some freestyle spoken word here, if that's okay. You know, I, I do think that this, this is a thought-provoking study because it does go against what I would describe as the typical cultural attitude towards cancer screening, which is, uh, it's a good thing. I do think that, you know, obviously this study shows that there's a, a population of people out there that 
even with this type of pretty limited intervention, when they have more information about some of the downsides of screening, they uh, choose not to be screened. How do we kind of operationalize that? I think uh, it becomes uh, it becomes a more uh, more complicated question. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think part of this probably comes down to whether whether or not you believe you can have nuanced mass messaging for uh, the general population. So, you know, for example, Cancer Care Ontario here in Ontario, their website about breast cancer screening basically has very simple information that essentially says breast cancer screening saves lives. They don't even say that breast cancer screening saves lives due to breast cancer death, which would be the more accurate statement. They just say it saves lives and they have no discussion about harms. Um, And, you know, when asked about this, there's an article on Healthy Debate, which we can link to about this topic. Effectively, the the statement was that this is a message meant for the general public and they didn't want to give mixed messaging saying that, you know, cancer screening has benefits and harms. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, breast cancer is a little bit unique, I think, in that you can just not, not you, Amol, as a uh, 31-year-old man, but a uh, 50-year-old woman can just self-refer uh, for breast cancer screening. And that's actually not the case, right, for colon cancer screening or, uh, or cervical cancer screening, to, as far as I know. All I would say is that as a if if I were a patient making this decision, I would want to know about both the harms and the benefits. Um, and I think that this study shows us that you can at least successfully educate some proportion of people with a relatively low uh, intensity intervention. And that ultimately does change behaviors in a fairly substantial way. Right. And I think one one thing that I would that I would want to keep in mind is there's probably no, you know, there, I don't know what the, uh, what the authors would say, what is the ideal rate of screening in a population? What pro- proportion of people do they think, or do we think, you know, should be declining it based on their own values? Who knows? And it's going to be very different from, from different populations and it will evolve as cancer treatment and care evolves too. Yeah. Which uh, is probably why, you know, their primary outcome of an informed decision is a more, logical outcome than like the number of people screened. Yeah. So, you know, this, I, I do think was a, a thought provoking study that, that looked at a, a decision tool to aid women in the decision to uh, undergo screening mammography. And it showed that when uh, women were given information about overdetection, they uh, were more likely to make an informed decision and, and less likely to, to prefer screening in the future. And uh, obviously this has some potential implications for the way that screening programs are, are administered and, and perhaps, uh, you know, opens the door for a little more uh, information to be to shared to, with women before they're uh, expected to make that, that choice. Okay, perfect. Thanks, Nathan. So let's change gears. I want to talk about uh, another potentially paradigm-shifting uh, study, which was called the Bridge Trial and published in the New England Journal of Medicine by Duquetis and authors, with the study being led out of McMaster University. So this high-quality randomized trial showed that a strategy of not bridging patients' anticoagulation around the time of elective surgeries or procedures was not inferior to bridging. 
All right. So, so we actually talked about this study or hinted at this study in our last episode of the last season. And uh, it had just come out at that time. And even though it's a couple of months old, uh, Nathan, I'm banking on the fact that at least some of our listeners did not spend their summers reading the pages of the New England Journal of Medicine so intently. And so they're still interested in having a conversation about this trial. I think you might be right. Okay. So this study is really all about managing blood thinners around the time of people's surgeries or procedures. The current guidelines, you know, there is a number of guidelines about this, but the one that most people follow is the American College of Chest Physicians guideline. When talking specifically about patients who have atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter as the cause of their anticoagulation or the indication for their anticoagulation, we don't really have a lot of evidence to decide whether or not it's safe to completely stop people's blood thinners. So practice and the guideline recommendations are that if people have relatively low risk of having a, a, a clotting event as a result of their atrial fibrillation, and that's based on the CHAD score, you just stop their blood thinner and then restart it after the procedure. And for several days, five days, seven days, they have no blood thinner. And so typically that's people who have a CHAD score of one or two. People who are at high risk, meaning they have a CHAD score of five or six, the guidelines recommend actually using bridging anticoagulation, so continuing a blood thinner around the time of their surgery. So you stop their warfarin and you give low molecular weight heparin or some other bridging uh, anticoagulant so that you reduce the amount of time uh, people have no blood thinner on board. And then there's this ambiguous zone in the guidelines, and that's for people who have intermediate risk, so a CHAD score of three or four. And the guidelines basically say, eh, talk to the patient about it. Um, How do you spell eh? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's an E plus an H and some kind of nasal sound. Does okay. that, can that get away with my addition function? No. No. <laughs> All right. So uh, so the authors tried to bring some evidence to this because we really don't have a lot of evidence to support this current practice. All right. So what did they do? So this was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, non-inferiority study. Uh, so basically, they took about 1,800 patients who were undergoing an elective operation or procedure these patients had to have chronic atrial fibrillation or flutter, and they had to be using warfarin as their primary method of blood thinning. So what uh, procedures were these patients undergoing? These were largely low-risk procedures. So these were basically all elect. They were all elective procedures. Uh, most of them were minor procedures in terms of uh, bleeding risk and clot risk. Uh, so for example... The vast majority of them were endoscopy procedures, so GI, colonoscopy, or other endoscopies, uh, or ambulatory uh, surgical procedures. So the design of the study was that people were all instructed to stop taking their warfarin five days before the procedure, and they all restarted their warfarin either the day of or the day after their procedure. Half of the patients were randomized 
to a low molecular weight heparin bridging anticoagulation. And the other half were randomized to placebo. So the primary outcome was arterial clot, including stroke, TIA, or systemic embolism. Uh, and the primary safety outcome was major bleeding. And they looked to see what the rates of those events were uh, within 30 days of the procedure. Okay. So what did they find? They found that there was basically no difference in the rates of arterial clot. So 0.3% of patients in the no bridging arm had systemic clots and 0.4% in the bridging arm had arterial systemic clots, uh, which basically there was no difference. And that was statistically significant for non-inferiority. So we can say that the two strategies were effectively the same. Uh, and then in terms of bleeding risk, there was 1.3% of patients in the no bridging arm had major bleeding and 3.2% in the bridging arm had major bleeding. So effectively a threefold difference uh, with a number needed to harm of 53 patients. So for every 53 patients on the bridging strategy, there was one additional major bleeding event and there was no difference in terms of preventing systemic clots. So can we just kind of uh, unpack a bit more about the procedures that these patients had? Because, uh, you know, in trying to think about how we can generalize this to, you know, the typical perioperative medicine practice, uh, obviously I think there's a big difference between the potential bleeding risk of the typical endoscopy versus uh, even if you're talking about ambulatory procedures, cholecystectomy, hernia, arthroscopy, and then obviously another category for, uh, you know, major laparotomies or thoracotomies or, or more, you know, radical procedures. So exactly what, what you know, would you say the, the, would you say that this can be generalized to all surgical patients? Do they have enough patients undergoing major resections or is this really more of a endoscopy population? Yeah, so it's a really important point. Unfortunately, the supplementary appendix uh, where they talk about which procedures people have just classify the type of procedure as gastrointestinal, cardiothoracic. The authors do make a comment in their discussion that basically there were no patients undergoing major surgical procedure in this population. So that's things like carotid surgery or major cancer surgery, cardiac surgery, neurosurgery. those patients were really not represented in this study. And And certainly they talk about that. And they basically say that, you know, although you can't generalize this to the major surgeries, the procedures that are included in this are representative of the most common interventions for which you are asked to stop anticoagulation and think about bridging. Right. No, I mean, you know, that, that, that's fair. When you see people in a, you know, perioperative medicine clinic for, uh, you know, preoperative consults, do you find that the, like a, a lot of those patients are patients going for endoscopy compared to like with, with this question? Cause I mean, I, I find that in, that in practice, uh, you know, if someone's going to undergo a laparotomy and they're on warfarin, that's a automatic, you know, medicine consult. But if they're going to get an endoscopy, that might be more of like, ah, let's just stop it or, or you're very high risk. Let's not stop it. And, uh, I would say on average, I mean, just given the volume of endoscopies that are done probably aren't bothering to, 
you know, get a hematology or internal medicine opinion on every single one of those patients. What, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I can't generalize outside of my own experience, but certainly in my experience, you know, I've very rarely, if ever see patients for endoscopy, uh, and certainly see people for any kind of more involved procedures or surgery surgeries. Um, I think that this study therefore has a lot of value for a surgeon or a gastroenterologist who may be just making these decisions themselves without subspecialty consultation. Yeah, 100%. Uh, and you can feel pretty comfortable just stopping people's anticoagulation if all you're doing is a colonoscopy, right? Uh, certainly, in and, and the other, I think, important thing to talk about in this study is the patient's baseline risk of having an event. To be clear, the guidelines sort of separate people into low, intermediate, and high risk. So low risk is CHADS 1 and 2, and high risk is CHADS 5 and 6, and intermediate risk is in between with CHADS 3 and 4. So in this study, only 3% of the patients were at high risk, CHADS 5 or 6. Uh-huh. 35% had CHADS 3 and 4, and the remaining, so let's do a few more arithmetic functions here, and that'll end up being about 62%, I want to oh, say. God, you're um, good. Are, uh, were low-risk patients. So did they stratify the, the findings for us uh, in these low, moderate, and high-risk groups? Uh, you know, I don't think they did. Uh, but they made the point that, you know, we really can't generalize these findings probably to, to high-risk patients. Uh, certainly, this is largely a low and intermediate risk population. Now, the question remains, as uh, you know, someone who's going to apply this evidence, do you think that this is enough evidence in that intermediate risk zone to safely say I'm not going to bridge uh, those patients? My other question was, you know, what proportion of patients on therapeutic anticoagulation for atrial fibrillation uh, in 2015 are on are on warfarin? Uh, compared to one of the newer anticoagulants, and, and therefore, you know how how relevant is this among among the uh, you know the, the the overall population? You know, in, in 2015. Yeah, so that is that is an extremely specific question, and I don't have a statistic for you on what percentage of people are still on warfarin. Well, that's disappointing. What I can say is that it's certainly declining, but it's not insubstantial. I mean, my gestalt would be fifty fifty. And uh, maybe that's declining, but it's still a lot. So I think yeah. it's still an important, uh, still an important uh, issue, and and still relevant. I agree completely. So why don't I wrap up and tell you how I would apply this evidence? And I invite our uh, listeners to either agree or disagree with me, and I invite them to do so publicly uh, via Twitter or Facebook or one of the various social. Uh, media platforms that we have at our fingertips. So this trial showed that in a low and intermediate risk population undergoing relatively low risk ambulatory procedures, bridging anticoagulation did not reduce the number of strokes or clot events, and in fact, tripled the number of bleeding events with a number needed to harm of just over 50. So this trial makes me comfortable not bridging patients who have a CHAD score of one or two, which is what I was doing anyway. I'll probably continue bridging patients with a CHAD score of five or six and patients with mechanical valves because they were not really, certainly the mechanical valves not at all represented and CHAD score five or six not not well represented in this study. 
And I think the 35% of patients in this trial who were CHADS 3 and 4 helps me not bridge that intermediate risk category. It still remains a nuanced decision, but I think generally I would err towards not bridging. And I think for me, for the colonoscopy, particularly the ones performed uh, for screening where you're probably not going to be doing a, a big polypectomy, uh, probably comfortable uh, just carrying on not uh, bridging their, their, their warfarin. Great. So perhaps not practice changing, but sort of practice nudging kind of article. Yeah, practice uh, informing. Perfect. Okay, so let's move, let's uh, wrap up and move on to our good stuff segment. So Nathan, what caught your eye from the world of medicine this week? Yeah, so I came across an article in uh, your favorite good stuff source of all, the New York Times. Uh, what are hospital costs? Utah system is trying to learn. So what I thought was just cool about this article is that it's from the uh, University of Utah healthcare system, uh, their efforts to try and uh, better understand and ultimately contain their costs and this uh, really uh, global effort to measure and document the cost of, of everything. And they just, a couple of, of fun facts that they were able to calculate as a part of this uh, effort. So uh, they were able to show that a uh, minute for a patient in the emergency room at their institution costs 82 cents, a minute in the intensive care unit, a dollar 43, and a minute in the operating room for an orthopedic operation, $12. And this type of granular data that they've been able to calculate has uh, allowed them to change some of their processes and uh, allocate resources differently and ultimately uh, save money. And they're catching uh, you know, the attention of a lot of uh, health systems leaders and uh, business school type uh, consultants. And uh, it's kind of cutting edge uh, uh, resource allocation uh, stuff. So it was, a, it was a cool article. Okay, thanks, Nathan. Uh, my good stuff segment, which I thought was appropriate for our conversation today, uh, is an interview with Preeti John, who is a critical care surgeon at the Baltimore VA Medical Center. And she has just written a book called Being a Woman Surgeon, an anthology of essays, poems, and interviews from trailblazing women surgeons. And one of our favorites, Atul Gawande, called the book funny, heartbreaking, flabbergasting, infuriating, and inspiring. And I'll just pull one tidbit out of the interview with uh, Dr. John. So the interviewer asked her, from your experience, what characteristics are most valuable to the success of a woman in the surgical field. And Dr. John said, first, willpower, the desire to train in this specialty. Second, perseverance and emotional strength. You have to keep at it and keep pulling yourself up after each failure. And finally, physical stamina. The hours can be long and challenging, and there are periods when you are on your feet for hours on end. Well, those are... Uh... So, those are attributes that even as a male internist, Amol, you may be able to, uh, identify, to with uh, identify with, and benefit, with from. and benefit from. I agree. Okay, Nathan, listen, it was a pleasure to chat with you as always. You as well, Amol. Thank you so much. And I wish you many successful math functions in your near future. I won't be able to keep up with you, but uh, I'll do my best. 